Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Welcome to The Thriller Zone. Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple, and I am so glad you have spun across that dial and joined us. There, uh, we're in season five already. That's year three. We must be doing something right. On today's show, I am very happy to announce uh, that I have a first-time debut author. Now, I don't do these often. Uh, as the show has really grown and taken off, I do them less frequently. However, this book came across my desk. I gave it a peek and I went, oh my goodness, yes. His name is Bruce Borges, like gorgeous. And the book is called The Bitter Past. As you can see by the yellow sticky notes and notes throughout, I really enjoyed this book. Before we get there, I want to say a very quick thank you to the nice comments that have been coming into our email box, thethrillerzone at gmail. A lot of folks just taking the time dropping a quick note saying we love the show love the authors you have on there love just what you're doing thank you i'm humbled and i'm very grateful to be providing this service i have so much fun we have a good time so without any further ado let's get on into the green room where bruce is waiting chillaxing on the thriller zone how much do you like the show i love it <laughs> Yes, I actually do. I, I really enjoyed your interview with Megan Abbott. Oh, she's so good. Yeah, yeah. I'm telling you, dude, I have the best job in the world. Uh, I really I know do. You. Yeah, absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Bruce Borges to the Thriller Zone. Oh, so happy to be here. Thank you Bor for having me. Borges like gorgeous. And it suits you so well, Bruce. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm going to tell you straight up front. I'm going to probably, I'm going to sound a little bit like a fanboy. Uh-oh. The Bitter Past by Bruce Borges. Dude, how can I, how can I put it simply? I'm going to give you a full review in a, in a couple of minutes, but I love this book. Good. Now, I'm going to be perfectly honest. We're we're new friends, so I'm going to uh, I I don't really bullshit people. I tell it like it is, but if I don't like a book, if I just flat out don't like it, you're probably not going to know it. Right. But if I love it, you're going to know it and you're going to walk away going, "Geez, he really loves my book." And this is one of those books I really love. Great. You see these little doohickeys here? Uh-huh. You got some notes in there. I got some notes because you <laughs> No, 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 no. <laughs> No, folks, I'm going to come back to that. I'm getting ahead of myself. Sometimes I get so excited, I kind of get ahead of myself. So let's not do that. Now, I will tell you this, though. Before we get started, I have to say, I knew I was going to like you when I read in your bio in the back. This is this made me it makes me laugh every time I read it. <laughs> Bruce Borges works very hard every day to prove his high school guidance counselor had good instincts when he said, you'll never be an astronaut. I just, for some reason, that got me. And I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to like this guy. Just a good feeling. That's a true story, by the way. Well, I hoped it is because you don't look like a liar. Yeah. <laughs> I did not know that this is a debut for you. 
It's a it's my debut mystery. I have written two other novels uh, that I self published uh, five seven years ago, um, but this is really my first foray into the mystery thriller space. Let's take a second, if you don't mind. Um, we can we can name the titles if you want to or not. It doesn't matter to me. My point is sometimes there's a lot of listeners in my show that are self published guys. I'm a self published guy. Sure. I've got nine books under my uh, my little mm-hmm. banner, and uh, my I have th- I had this theory early on, and I, I want to know how it relate how it resonates with you. I thought I, I work on this theory of like, all right, it's going to take ten years or ten thousand hours, whatever that magic thing is, for you to really feel confident that you're doing that you that you're hitting the marks, right? Right. So I'm like nine books. I should know by then. So now I'm ready. So tell me this. Did those first two books of yours that you self-published, were you kind of testing the waters? Tell me about that. Yeah, that's exactly what it was like for me. My first book, which is a novel called Holding Fire, which I self-published in 2016, was really kind of a proof of concept for me. I wanted, I, I had the idea, David, for many years because I was such an avid reader that I, I just knew instinctively, I, I just thought I could do this. I could write a book. Yeah. And of course, working full time and doing what normal people do uh, in their lives made it difficult to focus on, on getting that first book done. But that's really what it was for me. It was testing the waters. It was trying to see, can I put into a story that I've created? Can I create a world um, that makes sense, that has a good story to tell. Can I do that? And that's what it was for me. The second book came a lot faster, a lot easier, um, and but still very much kind of a, I want to see what I can do here. And and what, what genre were both of those? Well, I would classify both of them really as contemporary fiction. Uh-huh. The, the first one was specifically about the West involved a... Uh, a real life scenario of a kind of a war between cattlemen, cattle ranchers and the federal government over grazing land. Ultimately, it's more of a love story in the end, um, but it's about family and it's about all these things. And and it, I just use kind of a real scenario as the backdrop for the story. OK, uh, not self, uh, not autobiographical at all. No. Right. right. No, no. All right. Well, I am glad that you did a shift and went with Thriller because, dude, you have it. Oh, thanks. No, seriously. How did you get, I want to say Minotaur. Minotaur? Minotaur. Jeez, thank you. Hi. It's early in the morning. Yeah. (laughs) Minotaur, how did you land this gig? I mean, really, book one, uh, how did did you land it? How did you land the agent? How did you land it? land the uh, publishing. I'm so glad you asked me because a lot of people don't have a great sense of how people become writers and eventually get published, especially in the traditional publishing space. And for me, after I had done those first two novels, I said, okay, I think I'm ready to try to get traditionally published. And I really wanted that experience primarily because I was still working full time and I'm not a marketing person. Right. I wanted a team of people behind me. Now, you know, and, and most of your listeners know that 
to get traditionally published, you you firstly have to have a literary agent. Yeah. That's really the only way to do it. The only way. Um, so after I wrote the novel, I, I studied, or while I was writing it, I was also studying how to get an agent. And I took a couple of online courses. I found who I thought were some people who were experts in the area. I practiced it. I did everything I could to create the best, what they call query letter to agents, targeted specific groups of agents. And I was very, very fortunate, quite honestly, David. I, I landed my agent after about the fifth or sixth letter that I sent out. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and she's a very well-known agent in New York. And I, I kind of hit just a gold mine. I was, like I said, I was very fortunate. The, the, the private editor that I had employed to read over and give me feedback on my manuscript, um, she was fine with me mentioning that my manuscript had been edited by her. And, and she's a lady by the name of, of Kristen Weber, and she's extremely good at editing mysteries. Uh, and she said, by all means, mention my name in your query letters to agents. And as soon as I did that, um, my current agent contacted me and said, I want to read your manuscript. Wow. And, and, and literally, uh, within just a couple of months after signing with her, she, she sold the book right away. After we worked on a few things, you know, back and forth. Uh, I think I signed with her in December a couple of years ago. By February, she started taking it out and she had sold it in May. Holy bananas. Yeah. I mean, come on. No, I mean, she, yeah. like I said, a lot of things fell into place. Um, but as you well know, it's you, you, you do the things hopefully that you need to do to put you in the right place to make those things happen. Okay. Well, folks, if you're paying attention and taking notes like I am, here's a couple of things. Bruce said, I did the research. So he did the work. Then he practiced. You got to practice. Yes. You got to hone your skills before you get going. And then he mastered the query letter. Now it does help the fact that you picked a top shelf editor. Bueno. Yeah. Yeah. And that you mentioned that, that you had the wherewithal to follow that instruction and put it in your query. And I got to imagine with your sense of humor, which we're going to get to in a second, your query letter, probably, I would love to read you promise me you'll send me your query. <laughs> yeah. letter. Will you yeah, do that? Sure. Absolutely. Okay. You don't, I won't read it on the show on the air yeah. if you don't want me to, but I do want to read it because I am fascinated by that particular step in success yeah. because it really does. I've talked to a lot of agents uh, over the past two years for this show and they'll tell you and, and, and they'll say this, and this makes so much sense to me, Bruce. They go, if you knew David, how many query letters I go through in a week, right? And how many, how big the stack of manuscripts? Well, the old days is a stack. I'm, I'm, and I'm pointing as though people are looking at home, but it's electronic now. The point is, if you knew the volume that I go through on any given day, you'd realize that if you don't grab me in a sentence or three, you don't stand a chance. No, you don't. That's absolutely right. So I got to, I got to read it. I, I, I got to have the inside scoop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll send it to you. Kristen Weber, by the way, big props to you. Big love from the thriller zone to you. Um, well, Mr. Borges, I want to say that um, 
<laughs> like back to my comment about in the inside blurb, I knew that the humor, all right, if, if the humor's there, I bet you the humor's going to shine in the book. Let's just see. So it does. And in, in, in the bitter past, it shines through most eloquently. And I just could not believe it was uh, a debut, but I was blown away. And you want to know why? Ask me why. Ask why me. were you blown away? Because this, I'm so glad you asked, Bruce. What a great question. <laughs> it's got everything. It's got great characters you root for. This is not my review yet. I'm just talking about stuff that I like. Great characters you cheer for. The desert. Love the desert. Murder. Russian assassins. Hello. You can stop there. Uh, FBI. You even have a nice little dash of romance, and, which ends up being one of my favorite parts. I'm not a romance reader. This is not a romance book, but the way you weave romance in is so fucking good. And all packaged around a sheriff by the name of Porter Beck. That is it in a nutshell. Insert comment. All right, but okay. <clears throat> Can I do this? Because I love doing this. Yep. This is chapter two. I'm only on chapter two, and I'm, I mean, chapter two is only nine pages in, and it starts like this, and I'm going to I'm gonna truncate it just a little bit to expedite. Uh, uh, Porter Beck sitting at his desk. I'm deep in thought, staring down at the pictures of the tortured body of Ralph Atterbury, and don't see her walk into my office. I'm sorry, are you not Sheriff Beck, she says. The question finally reaches the hamster in my brain, currently on a smoke break, apparently in charge of processing incoming messages, causing my head to lift slowly from the desk. Why do you say it that way? <laughs> I'm still examining her, making mental notes, certain she knows I'm contemplating where our wedding should take place. <laughs> oh, my God. There are so many times I was laughing out loud with this book. I've got two more. I'm not going to give away all my candy in the lobby, but. I want to know this. Um, you wave, you weave this tapestry of this tale so terrifically engaging. I mean, yes, I'm going to, and I hope this is a compliment to you because I, I feel the influence of Craig Johnson's Longmire, mm -hmm. which, God, I love that, that series. I didn't read the books, but I love the TV series. Oh, the first, yeah. CJ Boxes, Joe Pickett. Yep. But you're still remaining wholly original with Porter Beck. Talk to me about Porter Beck. Where, where did he come from? How did you make him? You know, all the good questions that authorial guys like you like to tell. Sure. Well, I'm first of all, I'm glad that you like him as a character. He came from uh, a little bit after the point where I had kind of framed out the story. What I, you know, first of all, I'm I'm a history buff at, at heart. Uh, and growing up here in the Nevada desert and having lived here since the mid-60s, uh, I was always very interested in that part of our history here, not only Nevada's history, but the country's history. When we were testing the atomic bombs above ground in the 1950s and all of the, the radiation that, that flowed typically eastward into Utah and many other states, causing its, its own problems. But I thought that was a fascinating time of our history, the Cold War, the Russians, Soviets, everything that was going on. Um, I didn't want to write a nonfiction story about that. There's plenty of books about the atomic testing era. Um, but I loved that, that piece of our history. And, and so I thought, well, 
how do I how do I weave that into a story that people are going to want to read now? So I thought that it, it dovetailed nicely into a dual timeline story that uh, takes place predominantly in the present day, but but works its way back and forth into the 1950s. And, and to do that, I needed something to start the story. And so I, I decided I needed something really kind of captivating, a murder that would kick everything off. And so I needed a sheriff. And um, I, I chose uh, a, a real county, Lincoln County, which is just north of Las Vegas and, and directly east of the Nevada test site, yeah. um, what is now called the Nevada National Security Site, um, where all of this stuff took place. Um, and uh, once I did that, and I knew I needed, uh, because it's not like a big city police department up there, it's a sheriff's department, which is, as I describe in the book, uh, manned by, you know, the, a Boy Scout troop, essentially, uh, <laughs> in size. Yeah. Um, and yet they're covering this huge area about the size of Maryland. So that's how I came upon um, selecting a sheriff for my story. And then I just, I just thought about, I, I need to give him an interesting background. I need to give him some some personal obstacles that he needs to overcome that he's dealing with on a daily basis. And that's kind of how I I came to him without giving too much away. Well, and speaking of the personal obstacles, you you infiltrated the story with a personal obstacle. I like that phrase that I never had given any thought to. Now, I will say that as a bit of a hint. It does happen to certain people, especially uh, with time as you grow older. However, I'd never thought about the negative ramifications that would happen to someone in his position with the aforementioned malady. Right. Is that as obtuse as I possibly can be? Um, <laughs> but it's such a unique little it's one of those little silver threads that you weave into something and you don't think about it at the moment. But when you see that th silver thread later, you go, oh, that's interesting. And then later you go, oh, now I see where that silver thread is there. Right. <clears throat> so I, I dig that. The sense of humor. Uh, let me back up a second. That opening scene is probably one of the most graphic opening scenes I've read in a while. And I read a lot of books, Bruce, as you've heard me say on the show. I yeah. mean, uh, I don't know. We're we're approaching a buck and a half here into the fifth season now, year number three. And I have read a lot of stuff. I have not read a scene like that opening scene. I mean, I had to literally just pause a couple of times going, ooh, not only did my stomach uh, do a little uh, roller coaster lift, but I thought I got to talk to Bruce. Uh, and my first question is, Bruce, have you ever seen, have you been privy to any of this? That's what I want to know. And which led me to believe, uh, led me to think, well, if he has, what in the hell has he done for a living that would give you access to that? So it's a double whammy. Hit me now. Yeah. Actually, the answer is no. I've, it's no to both questions. I, I, I haven't seen anything like that, but like you, I've I've read so much in this genre um, that I could envision. I need something powerful to start the story, and um, 
there are a couple people that really helped me hone that first chapter to what it is now, and that's my editor um, and also a a friend of mine who is a former crime scene analyst. Oh, and and so. And I talked extensively to the the sheriff who, who just retired recently from Lincoln County, and I'd interviewed him several times, and he gave me some insights into into how they would actually arrive at and process a crime scene like that in that rural setting versus like a bigger city yeah. with the with the limited resources that they have. So um, again, I wanted to make it exactly as you described it, really this horrific, gruesome crime scene. And I knew that there was a risk there because, yeah. you know, we've all we've all done this. You pick up a book, sometimes in the bookstore, and you read the first couple pages and you go, oh, that's not for me. And I, I knew that there was a risk of people doing that with my story and immediately being turned off by how vivid I made that murder scene. But there's a reason I made it that way. Well, the opening line is, we don't have a lot of murder in Lincoln County. And that makes you go, oh, well, what? And then you start. So within just a paragraph, you start peeling it away, if you will. And I'm like, now, luckily, I secretly dig shit like this uh, <clears throat> because I'm a twisted little. Um, but I could see how some people would say, like, I'm thinking of my mother-in-law. She's like, I'm not reading that. That is just too gruesome for me. Yeah. Plus, I need more sex in it. But that's a whole other story. Um, so anyway, so there's that. All right. Well, can you do this for me? Tell me what your background is. What What did you do before you became a world, an internationally known writer? You know, I spent a lot of time in management positions in the very glamorous world of employee benefit administration. Oh, my God. Uh, where, where, you. where, you know, I obviously ran into a lot of situations like this that I described in my book. No, I, uh, I had a, a very kind of mundane existence in my career, which which was work that I, I definitely enjoyed and I, I thought I was good at. And, and which is probably the reason I did it as long as I did before I decided to just take up writing full time. But um, I just was always immersed in in both novels and television and movies that involved, uh, you know, whether it was a police procedural kind of story or a spy thriller um, those kinds of things. And they just stick in your brain, as you know. Yeah. I mean, you, 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 you find certain stories that you just love and you see over and over or you read over and over. And it's that kind of detail and that kind of description that really kind of grabs you. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Well, let's see. Uh, I got to read another one of these because this one just isn't really this one. I love this one. Where is he? Okay. <laughs> so we're back to uh, Sena, who uh, is this very attractive FBI agent who uh, is uh, on the case. And she, uh, she, she looks up and says, do you have a theory? My eyes are the perfect shade of noncommittal. And Locke doesn't wait for me to respond as if she had just asked a silver-backed gorilla what he thinks about the price of eggs. <laughs> 
Folks, if you're not enjoying it as much as me, go do something else. But I'll tell you, sometimes you just got to hang with it. I, I got to. Okay, there's one more. One more. Saina's dark eyes stay locked on me. What's the story with Arshal and this Eamon guy? And before you answer, does everyone up here have weird names? I'm sorry. Weird names, he asks. Arshal, Wardell, Tuffy, Eamon, Porter. It's like the Bible meets Zane Gray. That in of itself is funny enough, but then he goes, wow, I think. She knows who Zane Gray was. We should definitely start planning our wedding. Yeah. It's the inner dialogue that he has. And I think probably the reason I enjoy this so much, Bruce, is that he is that you, with all of this murder and mayhem, you have this thread of humor throughout. And I have talked to enough cops uh, police officers and the business to know that you, that they, a, they have a, a, a remarkable sense of humor and B, they say, will tell you, well, we have to, because of all the stuff that we see on any given day, if you don't have some levity, it will eat you up from the inside out. Right. Right. And, 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 you know, to that end, to that point. So my, my major, my main character, Porter Beck has a, an interesting past himself. He grew up in the Nevada desert in Lincoln County, his father was the sheriff for, you know, several decades. Um, but he himself went into the army uh, just after college, became uh, what they call a foreign area officer, which is a specialist in a particular region or country. So it's 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 attached to you know an intelligence type of outfit, but he has a very interesting past in that respect, which comes into play later in the book. And it, it, our skills, those are some skills that he obviously utilizes in his current job as sheriff. Um, but again, he's also dealing with some kind of disability that uh, he doesn't want to talk about much, not a lot of people know about. And um, he's trying to figure a way to still do his, his job with. Yeah, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but uh, in a upcoming sequel, which I'm very confident that you will have, I'm sure it will show itself more. What I'm hoping is that he'll find relief so that it doesn't take him out of this job because I see Porter Beck feels like a guy that's going to be around a long time. Yeah, that's certainly my hope, um, yeah. and, and that's my intention. And that's certainly uh, my publisher's intention. Yeah. So uh, that's what we're all hoping for. Okay. Well, now here's the official. I did make I make notes in the back of the book, things that really uh, mean something to me. <clears throat> and I wrote to myself, and I, I realized I'm massacring a word here, so just bear with me. I even yeah. put it in quotes in case you're wondering. One of the funnest reads I've read this year starts with a gross, overly zealous murder, but becomes complex with each turning page thanks to a liberal dusting of genuine humor. Insert accolades of retort here. That's that's certainly what I was striving for, quite, quite honestly. I mean, I, I wanted to write a serious story, but yeah. I'm not a serious guy. So I, the humor was very important to me. And, and, and thankfully, uh, a number of folks like you, uh, the early reviewers for the most part, really love that part of the book, which is how he, it's that inner dialogue that you spoke yep. of. 
and how he how he kind of views everything. And I'm telling you something uh, for for listeners who want to know um, the definition of finding your voice. Read the bitter past. And you'll instantly understand when you sit in class trying to learn, what what does the professor mean by finding your voice? Here you go, Billy. Pay attention. Because this is the personification, a quintessential example of uh, a particular voice that that would not be easily duplicated. By the way, I I made another note here. It says, one other thing I like about this is not a perfect bow ending. It provides now a lot of times you'll do you'll get a writer who's written a great book, and all of a sudden you're like dun 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 dun, dun and then you know the ending is there and it's gone and it's and it's done like in two pages and you're right. kind of like, wow, that kind of ended fast. This doesn't do that. Yeah. This ends and then it kind of downshifts a little bit into uh, third and fourth and then third and gives you time to uh, see the new world. And then it kind of tees you up very delicately for what is potentially to come in the future. Kind of cool. Yeah. And, and I, I really, you know, thinking that ultimately we wanted to make a series here. Uh, I wanted to leave the ending out there like that, which, which satisfied this initial story, certainly, but gave us some window into what that world was going to be like for Porter Beck and his family going forward. And ultimately, the book really is about, uh, as you, you no doubt saw, it, it's, it really comes down to the question of when, when the stakes really matter, can we do the right thing? Are we capable of doing the right thing at the right time? And that's a question that not only Porter Beck struggles with, but most of the other major characters in the story. And humankind in general. Right. <laughs> we yeah. should all be asking ourselves that, right. shouldn't we? Yes. Yeah. And it's not, you know, very often, most often, it is not an easy answer. Well, I got to tell you, the, 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 the reality of this protagonist, you know, what's interesting, you didn't spend a great deal of time painting the picture of what he looked like, which I thought was interesting. I kept going, oh, he's probably going to give me an idea. You hinted things, but you don't. He stood six foot four, 227, right. you know, whatever. So it allowed me to create the, you know, my own version of what he was, which, yeah. Yep, and I did that uh, again very purposely. I like you. I'm a huge Craig Johnson lover, but I knew even before the TV show came out exactly what Walt Longmire looked like. Yeah. You know, this real giant of a man. Uh, you know, almost like Jack Reacher. You know, that that kind of uh, description in a book where you know exactly what this guy looks like. Yeah, uh, and not like the Tom Cruise version of Jack Reacher, but but the new guy. Um, uh, and that, and I love that show, but. Um, yeah. So I, I did want to leave the reader the ability to uh, pretty much decide on their own who Porter Beck was, you know, and certainly physically. Back to Longmire. The thing I always liked about Longmire, he was a loner-ish. He, you know, his house is in the middle of construction or destruction. He was kind of sloppy, but he always went by his instincts. And that's kind of what I felt. 
with Porter. And the, the other thing I like about Porter is, and you don't make a big deal about it. A lot of times people will make a big deal about this particular, oh, I'm going to massacre this word. Is it mono, mnemonic? It's this mnemonic, ability. Yeah. Yeah. yeah thank you. Mm-hmm. To have this amazing memory uh, and recall of uh, a minutia of detail. And he right. has that, but you don't beat it over the head. So it's not like some, he's a secret agent, man. But, right. But anyway, I'm going to finish by saying that the bitter past folks is probably one. It is one of the most enjoyable books I've read this year. It opens with a horrific scene that you, uh, you can't get out of your head, sadly to say, or maybe good to say, because it shows you what kind of craftsmanship Bruce has got going. But the good news is it travels through this multitude of characters who, who are all well-crafted. They're believable, uh, still manages to deliver, to deliver a secret punch that I'm not quite sure I saw coming. I, there were hints that I'm like, Oh, I think I know it's coming. And you do think, and then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, Wow, he got me, and uh, it just it, a magnificent feat for book one. Well, I, I appreciate that. I love the feedback, and I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, I'm glad that uh, there were some surprises for you, and and I hope that is indicative of what uh, everyone else will experience as when the book comes out here shortly. Yeah, and uh, which you know, go ahead and tell me that you are working on the sequel, right? Yes. Yeah, I, I've actually written book two. It's done and is with my publisher now, and we expect it to be out sometime in 2024. I'm not sure of the timeline yet, and I'm currently working on what I hope will be book three. <laughs> Ain't no hoping necessary, Bruce. <laughs> uh, I think it's a given, and I, I tell you what, I don't say this often. There there have been a few books that have come across my desk in the last uh uh, two and a half years. And some of them being a, a closet indie filmmaker, I want to option them because yeah. uh, I think about how would it make a great series or a movie? Um, I won't rattle those off, but this would be in that list. And it's a short list, but this would be in that list. It's interesting that you say that the, uh, the gentleman who recorded the audio version is a guy by the name of James Babson, and he's an actor in Hollywood, and he does a lot of audio books. So he he's, does a lot of great voice work, um, and um, he, he sent me a nice note as he was wrapping up the recording of The Bitter Past, and uh, we had we had talked online a little bit. He'd asked me a few questions prior to getting started on recording it, just for clarification. And sure. um, when he got done, though, he sent me this nice note along with a sample of of the recording. And he said, "Listen, he goes, you know, I'm an actor, and this is just me. But if I were you, I would turn this into a screenplay." And what did you do with that? Well, I'm not a screenwriter. <laughs> I, I've, I've tried my hand at it. I much prefer to write novels, but I have, uh, again, thankfully through the fabulous team at Minotaur and my agent, um, the ability to get somebody out there who's, you know, looking to hopefully uh, at some point turn this into something on the screen. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to continue that conversation and don't let me forget it because we're going to chat about that after we get off the air. But folks, if you are interested in learning more about the bitter past, which drops a bam, like in just hours, practically by the time this show drops, 
go to bruceborges.com. That is B-O-R-G-O-S. Of course, I'll have it on the screen on, uh, down there. But you can also follow him on Twitter as I do. And I'm telling you, Bruce, you you, you got a hit here. You're, is, you're a delightful interview. I, I love the book. Congratulations to you. Oh, thanks so much, David. I know you're going to be at BoucherCon, so I hope to see you there. Maybe we can sit down and have an adult beverage and catch you up. Yes. Uh, by the way, for those folks who are still sitting on the fence about BoucherCon, it is here in lovely San Diego. And for those who don't know, now, if you come in May or June, you're going to face May gray or June gloom. It's a weird anomaly of weather. August, however, gorgeous. So sign up for BoucherCon. Number two, you and I are going to have a beverage, which, by the way, it's the craft beer capital of mm. the world. Mm. Even better. If you like. Yeah. <laughs> Folks, once again, the book is The Bitter Past. Bruce Borges, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks so much for having me, David. Thanks once again to Bruce. <laughs> what a great book. The Bitter Past, Bruce Borges. Drops tomorrow such a good book all right folks the summer is just getting started and we are cooking like the fourth of july which has already passed coming up on our next show a couple of quick things this author is the one i'm getting ready to mention he is writing for one of my absolute favorite franchises of all time and it's not james bond this guy is a hell of a writer, and his new book is called The Born Defiance. Brian Freeman, recognize the name? It's a Jason Bourne novel based on the Robert Ludlum series. The Born Defiance is coming up next week, and I got to tell you something. As always, Brian delivers, so please make a point to join us. Until then, I want to say thank you for the nice comments. Always, always, always grateful for those. You can stop by our website, thethrillerzone.com. You can join us on YouTube at youtube.com slash thethrillerzone. And of course, we're on all podcast channels, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and, and any others that you listen to. I'm David Temple, your host. I'll see you next time for another edition of The Thriller Zone. Your front row seat to the best thrillers. The Thriller Zone. Where's Momo and Popo? The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.